listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners. Welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we're joined with a special guest, Russell Brazil. He is a long-term buy and hold real estate investor. He's also a real estate agent at RL Real Estate, where he works specifically with investors. So, Russell, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, Russell, for those of our listeners who don't know you, and, and I say it like that because a lot of our listeners probably do know you, you're all over Bigger Pockets and all over all the social media platforms, always putting out great content. We were just talking before we started recording about how so often you like feel like you know somebody because of social media these days when you've never spoken to him in your life. And, and Russell's another one of those person like that. I've been following all the great content he's been putting out for so long that, that like, I felt like I know him when we pulled up on the show together. So how did it all begin? Can you kind of tell us the backstory and how you got where you are today? Sure. So my very first forays into real estate were right around 2003. If everyone remembers back then, that's when we were deep inside of the housing bubble and things were just going crazy. So my first few sort of experiments with real estate is I tried flipping. So I think I flipped three properties at that time. I was young, fresh out of college, and I had lost money on each of those first three with slightly less money on each one. (laughs) Luckily, I was young enough and stupid enough to not realize quite how much I was losing on each one, but I got a little bit better at the process with each one. And so I lost money on those first three ones. And that was with the market saving us because the market was going crazy then. Literally, stuff was going up every month. So even in that kind of market, I lost money on those first few ones. And then finally, I got the process a little bit better. And then I started making money on flips. So after the first three, it was like maybe five or six that I finally made some money on. And I was working full-time in healthcare at the time. And weirdly enough, I had to make a decision which way I was going to go with my career, real estate or healthcare. And I actually decided to go with healthcare. So a couple of years goes by, I'm working in healthcare full-time, sort of pushed real estate to the side and then the market started collapsing. And that's when I jumped back into real estate permanently. Once the market collapsed, I tried to buy up as many rentals as I could. I saw just a lot of opportunity. And that's when I really went heavy and started building my rental portfolio. How did you go about building your rental portfolio? Was it the money you were making from the healthcare industry? Were you putting down payments? Were you burring these houses? Or Yeah, so I was just doing straight rentals at the time. Burr was not a popular strategy as of yet. There were people doing it, but not calling it Burr. I was just about to get married, I think, at the time. So we were a two-income household with no kids. We lived very cheaply. And one of the houses we had bought was our primary residence as well. But I think our mortgage was only $1,500 or so, which in DC is not very much. So we had a lot of disposable income. So we were big savers. So we just kept saving the next down payment for each subsequent property. And each property we bought that cash flowed a little bit added to our savings rate. So the more and more properties we got, the quicker we were then able to save more and more money for each subsequent property after that. And we were typically using just straight conventional financing Fannie and Freddie loans. And we would split those up in between. Some of them would be in my name and some of them would be my wife's name, which allowed us to exceed that. I think there was four at the time, a limit of four loans you were allowed to have for conventional. Now it's a 10, but it allowed us to exceed that by splitting them up amongst us. 
Yeah, because you were a real estate investor before it was cool to be a real estate investor. <laughs> well, you know, I think people thought, some people thought it was cool. I, a lot of my friends thought I was crazy. I think they're all jealous now, a decade later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think to this day, everybody gets a, a lot of pushback from the friends and family going into it, especially those of us that came from like a successful corporate career. Right. And they're like, wait, you're going to do what? You're going to completely pivot into, you know, so there's... There's a lot of pushback there, but can you tell us about the, because you live in a different market. You mentioned DC, but you actually, you live in Maryland right outside of DC. And I can't imagine that's the best cash flowing market. So can you give us an example of your typical rental at the time and what the numbers on that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we're definitely a very low cash flow market. And in some instances can be completely non-existent. I always like to use this property as an example because it was one of the first, I think it might've been my second property and I still own it today. So this was in Rockville, Maryland, which is, I don't know, five or six miles outside of the DC border. So it's in the suburbs. And this property I bought in 2009 and I paid at the time 290,000 for it. I put a tenant in there and we were getting 1,900 in rent and my PITI was 1,700. So I was only free cash flow of $200 a month. And after you factor in expenses, it was probably even to maybe even slightly negative on that property. So definitely not a property that was going to help me quit my job, right? I've accidentally discovered this over time. This worked with some properties, not some others. But what, what happened is the longer and longer I held these properties, and as I would get rent raises every year, some locations I was getting outsized rent increases. So that same property that I bought in 2009 that rented for 1900 then rents for 3100 today, 11 years later. And I've also refinanced that property. So now my payment went from 1700 to it's 13 and change. So what was initially free cash flow of $200 a month, I get $1,800 today. And not every property I bought has been like that. I've lost some money on some bad locations. But now I tend to focus on trying to buy in locations where I'm going to get a lot of rent growth. And those areas also tend to appreciate very strongly as well. So with a little bit of patience, I can get a lot more cash flow than if I bought in a cash flow market. Got it. So how do you determine where you're going to get rent growth? Yeah. So a lot of it is going to occur in areas where people sort of intuitively know it's going to happen, but they don't put a plus B together, where we have demand that is increasing over time. Where do people want to live? Where are they willing to pay premiums to live? So that particular property is in a highly desirable suburbs where generally upper middle class people live and it continues to increase in value and desirability. So every year people are paying more and more money to get into that location. Other locations like that are gentrifying neighborhoods, right? Because gentrifying neighborhood is a neighborhood that is changing from a low demand location into a high demand location very quickly. So when that's happening, we're going to see prices and rents rise very dramatically in uh, gentrifying neighborhoods. I had one property in a matter of five years, I think the rent went up $1,000 a month in five years and the property's value went up almost $150,000 in five years. So I kind of got in the earliest, but relatively early into that gentrifying neighborhood. And those are typically 
you know, I think when people start thinking about it, they sort of recognize where those locations are in their own markets. Where are the hip young people moving? Where are the new bars opening? Things of that nature. You know, follow the hipsters and you'll probably make money. <laughs> right. So a couple things about your market specifically and your strategy specifically, because I am after trial and error and banging my head against the wall and having my head banged against the wall, I've gotten away from wanting to go straight into those like real high cash flow areas because you, once you like net out all of the problems, they're not really that high cash flow at all. I have a fourplex right now that on paper should cash flow me over $2,000 a month. But right now I have two vacant units. So it's 50% vacant. Mm -hmm. And with the two units that they just moved out, they tore it up. So I have all those repair costs. So my collections from those units was $69 this month. So it's like, you know, but my fear about buying the higher end stuff is like, in my mind, I just can't wrap my head around why somebody who can afford to pay like three to $4,000 a month in rent is not owning. Yeah. So hundred percent get that. And Sometimes I sit there and think, because my typical rental is right around $3,000 a month in rent. And, you know, for perspective, my personal mortgage is $3,000 a month. And I live in a place way nicer than my rentals are. And my rentals are pretty nice. They're, they're in nice neighborhoods. They're not as nice as my primary residence. So my tenants could easily be living a much better lifestyle if they purchase a home. So sometimes I, I sit there and also think, I don't get it. But people do it. The owner occupancy rate nationwide is about two thirds of the population owns and a third rents. And so there's a, just that third of people that are never going to be homeowners for whatever reason. Do you ever try to convert your tenant pool into homeowners and be their agent? In Absolutely. In fact, I tell all of my tenants that if they want to break the lease early to buy a house, if they use me as their agent, then they don't have to worry about the lease. I forget who it was, but there's some guy in Texas that was interviewed on Bigger Pockets. I heard a long time ago, and he would send these little cards out to his tenants that said, buy from me and tear up the lease for free. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great strategy because I can make ten dollars or $15,000 on a commission. So what do I care if they move out in the middle of their lease? I'll have one month vacant and I'll end up net, you know. Now, for, for all of y'all who are listening to this that live in areas like me that think that $3,000 rents are insane, we were talking before the show. So I watched one of Russell's interviews. It was with Alex Felice. It was his Bigger Pockets miniseries. Well, I think Meet the Investor. Is that what it's called? Yep. And Russell was like touring some of his properties. And one of them is receiving over $5,000 a month on Section 8. I, I had to send that to all my investor friends here in South Louisiana because we'd never heard of anything like that. Yeah, the Section 8 rents in parts of the District of Columbia can be insane. And it makes no rhyme or reason how they divide up the city by these rents. So that particular house, we were looking at that one for a client of mine. And that was a five-bedroom that was going to get Section 8 rent of 5500 a month market rate rents in that neighborhood were about, because it was a good neighborhood, but not the best, were about 4000 So Section 8 was going to pay a huge premium in that specific neighborhood, which there's no logic to it, but just the way it works. <laughs> 
So how has your strategy evolved over time? What are you doing these days? I, I know you said initially you were just kind of saving up each next down payment. I would imagine at some point you ran out of the capacity to use conventional financing. Yeah. So what I typically am doing these days and also would sort of change a little bit over time because you mentioned your fourplex that doesn't quite produce the numbers you would expect. So I'd say a lot of my early properties were a mixture all over the board mixture of good locations and some bad locations. I lost some money on some bad location properties that were, you know, kind of in the hood. So I did shift over to only really generally good areas. And I've also sort of shifted from wanting to buy fixer uppers to buying rent ready stuff. Because my sort of goal is to have very minimal involvement with my rental portfolio. I don't want to deal with a lot of repairs or a lot of capex. So I generally want to buy a property that's rent ready, that's already been rehabbed, that's nicer, where I can get tenants in there immediately and then not have to deal with a lot of headaches. So how are you financing these? What I typically do these days is, so between me and my wife, we're going to have 20 loans and I do have some commercial loans, but generally what I'm doing is I'm taking the older properties now that have a lot of equity and I'm reselling those and I'm trading them up to larger properties. And I've sort of done that it's sort of different stages. So I also had a number of condos that I purchased sort of in the 2009 to 12 range. When those appreciated, once we got into the middle part of the teens decade, I traded a lot of those up to single families. Now, a lot of those single families that have a lot of equity, I'm selling those off and I'm trading those up to larger, more expensive properties. So that's sort of what I've been doing is I take the old ones. And so I'm not necessarily increasing my unit count a lot, but I'm increasing from a cheap property to a middle price property, middle price property to an expensive property. I've got one property. I'm actually just had a tenant move out. I've had it five, almost six years. I've had that. So I've got about a little over 220 in equity in that. So now I'm going to sell that and buy something that's, you know, considerably more expensive than that one. So with buying turnkey properties today, it sounds like the equity is coming from the previous properties that you accumulated over time. Does it not hurt to not be able to add instant equity when you're, when you're buying? Yeah. I mean, it's all about right strategy. And so my early properties, I definitely wanted to buy something that needed work to create that instant equity. And there's absolutely no doubt that, right. Buying something like that is the, quickest and easiest way to build wealth. But sort of, I built the whole, this whole bunch of wealth around age 30. So now I have all this wealth. And so is my goal now to continue to increase this wealth as much as I can. I don't need to increase it as, as at fast of a pace because it's there. So it's really trading things up to a better quality product. I don't necessarily need something where I'm getting a 25% return. I can be in that sort of 10 to 15% range, still get a very strong overall return, but not have to uh, spend the time or effort to create more wealth, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because I'm at a different, different spot in my life now. Sure, sure. It's so funny. I see people on every forum about every topic and they'll argue about kind of what the best route is or you need to invest this way, you need to do it that way. You're wrong, you need to do it that way. And what I've found is that like there's different answers at different stages of your journey, right? So there was like certain parts of my life where 
being the next CFO of this major corporation I was working for was like the most important thing in the world. And, you know, if I wasn't focusing all on that, I was great. And then there was other stages in my life like now with the real estate where the, the independence is, and then there's different stages where I just want as many units as possible to get as much cash flow as possible. Then there's other stages where I just want to increase my net worth. And it's so there's like, there's very, it's interesting how you see just different things are important to different people at different stages in their journey. And somebody that doesn't understand that may come along and say that's wrong, but they're just at a different point in their journey. Yeah. My buddy, Ned Carey's got a great quote and it's, all strategies work, but they don't work in all places or at all times, right? So I usually like to keep things very simple. So I take what my market gives me. I know my market inside and out. I have some properties in other markets, but I generally want to focus on the locations I know the best and I know what the market's going to give me and I don't try to complicate it. And yeah, it seems to you know work out generally over time. I happen to be in a really good market. So that also helps, right? When your properties are consistently increasing in value and your rents are consistently increasing year after year, you know, that hides a lot of mistakes that you can make. Right. So what advice do you have for any, you know, younger kind of wannabe investors that are looking to get started? Is there some kind of like, if I'd have known this when I was younger type of? Yeah, so probably... Number one thing, and it's funny because Alex introduced us, and Alex, I think, is the best at this. It's a very simple quote that your net worth is proportional to your network. Networking is probably one of the key things to building wealth in real estate. Who you know and knowing everyone and having good relationships. You know, very often I don't need to even find my next property that I want to buy, is just by knowing everyone in the real estate industry. People come along like, hey, Russell, I got this property. I think it's right up your alley. Do you want to take a look at it? You know, and conversely, when I find properties that I think are right for a certain person, I'm going to that person. Hey, I think this property's right up your alley. And so, so much of the deal making that happens in real estate happens through your network, just from knowing people. I agree 100%. And I can't echo that enough. And to, you know, praise Alex on that topic. So we just released his episode last week. And I don't even name the episodes anymore. My editor goes through and like edits them and and we have writers that, you know, name it and describe it and all that. And when it came back, the name of it was Fanatical Networking with Alex Felice. And I was like, they did a good job. I guess they did listen to the interview. He is without fail the best networker that I know. He has made it a point to know all the major real estate investors and all the major metro areas in America. You know, I'm... 600 miles away from him. He's one of my best friends. I mean, whatever he tells you guys to do in that episode, do it. (laughs) (laughs) And as far as people, I mean, just on the topic and the subject of networking, that's always the first piece of advice when, you know, people come to me and, well, well, where do you find this? Where do you find this? I always tell them just to go, go to the local meetup and start there, you know, get on bigger pockets, start reaching out, join these local Facebook groups, start asking them, because, I mean, my last five houses that I bird, some wholesaler brought it to me. They sent me a text message. Hey, this is going to go out on the market tomorrow. Do you want to look at it first? And before that, a bunch of my small multifamilies I got through seller financing because I went and had lunch with the owner. You know what I'm saying? That nobody else knew they were even for sale. 
my appraisals always come back the way I want them to because I know all the appraisers and, you know, I make sure to spend an hour and a half talking to them, you know, at every appraisal. I mean, it's such simple advice, but really is the most powerful. And I'm sure you hear time and time and time again from people that are successful. We all reiterate that same thing. Awesome. So real quick, I want to hop into our radio round. Just a couple questions, help, help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. The first one is, what is your favorite book? My favorite book is a book called Ishmael, and it's part of a trilogy. The three books are Ishmael, My Ishmael, and The Story of B. They have nothing to do with real estate. They're philosophy books. And whether you agree or disagree with the philosophy that the author's trying to make, there's a very important concept in these books where it teaches your brain to think about the world in different ways, to try to remove your biases and preconceptions about things. And when we can do that, it really helps to see the world in much clearer fashion, to see solutions to problems that we may not see when we're able to remove our biases and preconceptions. Ishmael, the author is Daniel Quinn. Really cool book. Awesome. I'll check it out. What is your favorite quote? My favorite quote is, interestingly enough, well, I probably have two of them. Is, is that okay if I cheat? Yeah, yeah. So one of them is investment related and one of them is not. So my favorite investment-related quote is by Peter Lynch, and that's invest in what you know. I think that when we fanatically invest in the things that we know best, we're going to be better investors. Invest in your own market and the locations you know best instead of trying to learn an entirely different market. You know, and it holds for Peter Lynch as a stock investor. So sure. whatever type of investing you do, if you invest in what you know, you're, you're going to have an unfair advantage in that sector. And sort of my other favorite quotes, non-real estate related, and that's by Van Wilder. Don't take life too seriously or you won't get out alive. You know, you're supposed to have fun in life. So, you know, don't let all the challenges of life get you down. Just, you know, have a good time. Awesome. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? You know, it's interesting because a little bit we go back to the networking thing is I, I love being with people and talking to them and socializing. I love going and hanging out at the bars with my friends. I love going to parties and talking to people. So that's outside of work, but it sort of is work, right? Because it goes back to that networking idea. Just getting to know people. It all mushes together for sure. Yeah. My favorite thing to do outside of work is sit around with my friends and talk about real estate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they network with you? How can they find you? You can find me pretty easily on my website, which is just my name, russellbrazil.com. If you happen to be in the DC area or visiting during non-COVID times, I run a real estate meetup. The website for that is dcreirockstars.com. We typically bring in you know, speakers to speak and teach us about real estate investing. But yeah, if you're in the DC area, hit me up. Or if you're not, you know, I talk to a lot of people from around the country too. Awesome. Russell, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed it. And I know our listeners will too. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestwordcapital.com. 
We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. <laughs>